Hi, welcome to the Pro Tips for Independent Bands podcast by Stab Panda Music. My name's Liam Taylor. I am one of the regular co-hosts of Stab Panda, writer for the blog, uh, doer of all kinds of things. I really wish I'd scripted this intro, but I didn't. And that's the story of why it's rambly. Good start. Really good start. This episode is an interview with John Wheeler, frontman for Hayseed Dixie. If you don't know Hayseed Dixie, they are, uh, I guess, comedy covers band. They play rock grass covers of ACDC, Def Leppard, all kinds of classic rock acts. They've carved a real niche out for themselves. We're just incredibly thankful and lucky to have been able to sit down with John. Still kind of blows my mind that he uh, happens to live around our neck of the woods, but uh, there it is. This interview was conducted by Sai, the one of the other co-hosts for Stab Panda, and it was released in September of 2016, so it is going back a little bit. But you know what? This is one of my favourite Pro Tips interviews to rewatch because actually there's so much good information in there, it just it's timeless. It never gets old. So I'm gonna stop talking. I'm gonna edit over to Sai uh, three and a bit years ago. And then I'm going to come back at the end and I'm going to try and convince you to send us money over Patreon because that's basically why I'm here. Over to you, Simon, in September of 2016. Thanks for coming, John. It's wonderful to have you here. So you're embarking on a UK tour next month. Uh, you're playing original material this time around. What kind of, of a toll can touring take on someone who does this regularly? Like, What things do you sort of have to be aware of when you're just to make sure you know you stay sane? Oh man, uh, trying to get new, good nutrition, that's important. Mm. Uh, you can definitely tell if you're in a poor town or a rich town or a poor or rich neighborhood by what kind of restaurants are on offer. <laughs> we usually try to have it where everybody gets their own hotel room and it's a little bit of a luxury, but uh, I think it's kind of necessary because more than health, trying to just keep everybody in the, in the unit's attitudes roughly on the same page uh, is one of the harder things. I mean, mm. I think a lot of people don't realize I look at it like we play the shows for free, but what I get paid for is all the logistical stuff I have to do to get to the show. Mm. If I decided to walk around a corner from my house, like up to y'all's pub or something, I don't really care if I get paid for it or not, you know, sort me mm. out a beer or two, whatever. It's, you know. <laughs> but if I've got to go spend the night someplace and travel to it and sit in traffic and deal with airport people who have no sense of humor they're aware of, you know, and baggage handlers who've had all the joy of life drained from their being, mm -hmm. then, then that's what I got to get paid for is navigating all that, you know? Um, so I think, yeah, yeah, everybody being able to sort of sit on the bowl for as long as they want without feeling like there's somebody out there waiting to brush their teeth or whatever, over a course of a few days, that kind of stuff will, will completely get you wanting to rip each other's throats out. Mm. And that kind of stuff then bleeds into your show. If everybody's kind of assed up a half an hour before the gig because they were having to be crammed three people into a travel lodge room, mm. that really starts to affect everything about the show you do, you know, mm. and your attitude about it. So we don't tend to ever, even with Hasty, we don't ever take tour buses around. I mean, I don't really see the point. Unless you've got a huge crew, I would rather drive a car or two and stay in a hotel every night than to be driving around in a bus and sleeping on a bus, mm -hmm. just from a pure comfort level. Um, there's also the issue of what buses cost. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't, I haven't priced one up in a long time, but you got to pay the driver, say, two fifty, three hundred a day. You got to rent the bus two or 300 a day. You got to put fuel in it. I mean, you're going to spend close to a thousand a day keeping a bus on the road. That's what you're, mm -hmm. by the time it's all said and done, you got insurance on, you lease it and you, you know, mm -hmm. and you have off days, you prorate it over the gigs. You're going to, you're going to spend about a grand a day on a bus. I mean, you can get 
four or five travel lodge rooms and a couple of cars cheaper than that. Mm. And I think it's more comfortable for everybody. I think for, I don't know why it is that everybody thinks, okay, we're going to go on tour. We got to get a bus. I've never understood that. I mean, back before I did Hayseed, when I was in my twenties and I played with um, just side guy playing fiddle for country guys around the States. Mm. Uh, I did a few tours where we were running buses and I thought it was miserable. I thought it was like a factory job. The only time buses are kind of cool is if you plan a festival because there's never hotels close to festival sites. Mm-hmm. And it means that you can kind of pull up there and stay on site and hang out with the other musicians and stuff. In, in those scenarios, it can be kind of cool, but I still think you'd be better off with a camper van. Mm-hmm. That to me is one of the most important things when you're, when you're doing a tour is to try to keep some everybody in the in the in the traveling party having some degree of personal autonomy Mm. so that's the other downside of a bus is that everybody has to make a group decision about every single thing like Mm. where you're going to stop and eat where you where you're going to stop and pee what time you're going to leave what time you're going to go to the venue what time you're going to meet up to go to the next show Mm. there has to be group consensus on every little detail Mm. and when you have to do that with a group of five, six, seven people, it's like going into a video rental shop back when such things existed yeah. and trying to get consensus on what to watch for every decision that has to be made over the course of the whole day. So I would actually say to anybody starting out, you know, try to do your tours in cars, you mm. know, or, or get a little van, put a trailer on the back of it or something and haul your kit around. Mm. And, um, also try to keep your kit as minimal as possible. Mm. I mean, do you really, unless you're doing a lot of alternate tunings or something, do you really need six guitars? Mm. You know, could you, could you accomplish it with two? And if you can try to do it with two, you know, Mm. and try to do your own, your own stuff. Every extra person that you add to a touring party is another personality, another attitude, another ego Mm. that has to be dealt with. And, can unbalance the other part of the crew. So Hacey Dixie, known for recreating quite a lot of rock and pop in a blue bluegrass style, although I've heard that you, you hate that word, bluegrass. Well, I don't... I don't <laughs> it's a word that most people know what it means, so yeah. why not use it? I mean, you, t- you say bluegrass, they, they, they know that you mean like banjos and mandolins and whatnot. Yeah. Um, I just kind of call it hillbilly music. I, I was never intended to do straight bluegrass when, when we started the group. I was just trying to reimagine certain tunes as if they had been done by Appalachian mountain people. Cause Fair that's enough. where my family <laughs> comes from. And once we got into it, I, I never thought it would turn into a career. I thought it'd be like a one-off recording and it would just kind of be a, a, an odd little curiosity. But uh, I don't think I had an appreciation for how that when you do a, a song in a completely different genre like that, you, mm-hmm. you bring the lyric to the forefront and you also kind of bring the structure of the song to the forefront. So it kind of has to be a, a relatively well-written song or else it doesn't work. Mm. You kind of demonstrate whether it's a good song or not by, by, by swapping the genre. It's interesting that people want to hear well-known songs as close to the originals when you know people do covers and stuff. Um, but I mean, you've made a career doing more or less the total opposite. Is there is there a sort of a secret to that, or is it a case of doing what you love and hoping people dig it? I don't. I think probably it's it's a matter of whatever you're playing and you're having fun playing while you're drinking beer. Other beer drinkers will probably have fun listening to. I, if there's any kind of a formula to apply, you know. Mm. Uh, I will say most of the things I've done, I'm 45, I've been trying to play music for about 30 years. Most of the things that I've done that I really labored over, spent a month trying to write the song or or work out an arrangement or something, tend to be the things that when I get finished with them, people will say, yeah, that's pretty cool. The things Mm. that you sort of bust off in 10 or 15 minutes and you're peeing your pants laughing while you're doing it, Mm. those are the ones that people go, yeah! (laughs) I think, yeah, I think there's something to be said for for not overthinking stuff too much Mm. and and trying to freeze the design from when you have the idea to do it. And and that gets difficult when you start getting into a professional career with it because you have 
record label people and publicists and other people in the group and yourself as well who start thinking, okay, how do we repeat our last success? And you start trying to figure out like what you said. Like you know, the difficult there, second album. Is there a model? Is there a, is there a formula? And how can we then apply things to a formula? And I think when you do that, you make a big mistake because then it becomes a process of like an assembly line and there's mm. not any... There's not any fun in it anymore. Mm. So trying to keep it spontaneous and fun when it becomes your occupation uh, can be difficult, <laughs> you enough. know. But I think that's that's the the goal anyway is to try to try to keep the same attitude you had before it became your full time occupation. Mm. So there's no end of like adverts for websites and services claiming that unsigned bands need to spend their money on their service in order to make it. What is it smart to spend money on, and at what point should you? In your in your career, should you think about spending money on things? Here's an example. I mean, there's a girl around town here in Cambridge who sent me a, a Facebook message a while back, and she said, "Yeah, I've just got this new record. I just recorded it. You know, we did it in this nice studio. I think we spent I don't know, eight or nine grand or something." She said she spent making this record and hiring, hiring people. She's like, "I got about a thousand pounds left in a budget. You know, how should I promote it?" And I was thinking to myself, "Oh man, I wish you'd talk to me before you recorded it because." you kind of got that backwards. Mm. You probably should have spent a grand recording it and eight or nine grand marketing it. <laughs> I mean, I would say from my experience that when you're, when you're doing an album or you're doing a film or you're writing a book or you're making cheesecake or brewing a beer or whatever, you're, you're taking a product to market and mm. people have to know it exists. I mean, build it and they will come to me is the stupidest phrase ever uttered. Mm -hmm. <laughs> build it and it'll sit there on your shelf. You know, nobody's going to know, nobody's going to buy it if they don't know it exists, mm. you know? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I would say eighty-five, ninety percent of of what you, what I do in the music business is is marketing it. Maybe ten percent of it's actually creating the product, and that's not what I would have thought when I was a high school kid sitting in my bedroom trying to learn how to play, mm. you know, and listening to records because music is a very aspirational thing, and we all want to think of um, of it as being like this burst of passion, and then somebody else somebody else takes it from there. Well, if somebody else takes it from there to market it, they're going to take most of your money. Mm. You know, and not that it's all about money. I mean, if I was trying to get rich, if I'd have spent even half the energy on being a property developer or something that I've spent trying to market music products, I'd probably be a much financially richer guy, mm. but I would have had a lot less experience. I don't have mm. any, any regrets about any of it. But I, I would say that what you should do is, is try to make your record as cheaply as you can do it and still maintain a reasonable quality level. I mean, you mm. don't have to go to some super fancy studio anymore to make a decent sounding record, unless mm. you're wanting to cut string sections or something. And maybe you mm. ought to save that till you've got a decent budget. Mm. At the end of the day, like I was saying about cutting a rock grass record and, and you put the song front and center, really, if, if you've got a great song and you've got it with, with a pretty decent performance, you could record it in a phone booth and it would still move people. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, every breath you take could have been recorded in a bedroom on an acoustic guitar and it would still be a a hit song mm. i'm not a huge fan of it but it's 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 a hit song it just mm. is that little guitar riff and his vocal over the top of it is it it works mm. you know uh, i've never heard their demo of it i'm sure there is one somewhere and i'm sure it's great you know that's a very simple recording actually mm. a, a lot of hit records are very simple recording if you're having to hide behind a big production then maybe your song isn't there mm. you know what i'm saying yeah if it was all about technical perfection you know stones wouldn't have a career mm. Some of those records are really sloppy, but they got a vibe, you know? So I think you should try to make the record, as I say, as cheaply as you can make it and still have it sound reasonable, and then take most of your money and spend it on trying to market it. And there's a lot of different ways you can do that, depending on what genre you're in. But I would say, if you're going to release a record, you should always try to hire at least a proper publicist to put mm -hmm. it out there. And you should, you know, 
try to get reviews. And you need, you need to do this at the same time that you're putting a tour together. I mean, mm-hmm. the analogy I would use to use a sports analogy is like if you watch a football match, you can see a team that plays really well but scores badly. Mm-hmm. Or you can have a team that plays kind of average but just scores really well because they're positioned real well mm-hmm. whenever there's an opportunity to put it through the net to mm-hmm. actually score. Mm-hmm. So to do that when you're marketing a product, the, the product has to be commercially available at the same time that you're doing promotion for it. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. When people say things like, yeah, I've got a new record. I put it up on Bandcamp or whatever, so I've released a record. No, you haven't released a record. You've made it available. Mm-hmm. There's a big difference between making it available and releasing it. Mm-hmm. Releasing it implies making it available and putting a promotional drive behind it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think the minimum that you need when you try to release an album is a, a publicist who's going to work the the print media and the and the digital side of things. And there's lots of them. You know, you can go shop around. I mean, a, a good one just for the UK. You might get one for fifteen hundred in pounds. You mm-hmm. you can always negotiate. You know, mm-hmm. if they quote a price of three grand at you, go back and say, can you do it for fifteen? I mean, you know, mm-hmm. it's like trying to buy a car or something. Don't yeah. or a piece of antique. Don't, don't go <laughs> pay them what they offer. But um, you need at least a publicist. And and somebody who's booking you a tour that puts you in front of some people at the same time this is happening. Mm-hmm. And you, you probably wouldn't be doing bad to try to get a radio plugger to sling it around a little bit as well. There's a, a lot of options. I mean, people talk about digital distribution, I, but I'm still not convinced that, that the majority of the population out there goes on YouTube looking for new music. I think they go on things like YouTube looking for something that they already know. Mm-hmm. And traditional radio still matters. It really does. I mean, I notice it. I mean, uh, you know, if if Chris Evans plays one of our tracks on his breakfast show on Radio 2, it is not subtle. Everything mm. lights up, man. The Amazon rankings and the iTunes and the website and the Facebook, everything lights up mm. for a couple of days, you know. And there will only probably be a handful of people in, in, in any given country who are into the music you're into unless you're trying to make a straight pop record, mm. in which case you definitely need to hire a radio plugger. Yeah, try to keep to release an album in the UK. I think you need five, six grand in your budget mm. just to hire subcontractors to promote it. And that's all a record label really does anymore is hire subcontractors and they'll front the money for it, mm. but then they'll take a huge piece back on the backside. So you really need to be able to, if you're a band or a solo artist or whatever, you need to be able to come up with probably eight or 10,000 pounds mm. to make your record, get the packaging done and hire people to then go promote it. Somewhere around there, you know, and that's a reasonable amount of money, but it's not insurmountable. If you got a group of four or five guys, you ought to be able to each pony up a couple of grand for the promotion of it. And then don't sign to a record label. I mean, you can go to any number of distributors. There's only a handful of bricks and mortars retailers, H&B and there's Amazon that's going to sell vinyl and and physical CDs. You don't need a record label. The only time you need a record label anymore, like you, there's only about three. There's Universal and Sony and Warner Bros. That's it. Mm. The only time you need one of those guys is if you think you're the next Adele, you know, mm. and, and you're doing really right down the middle pop music. Mm. Then maybe, yeah, okay, you need the kind of marketing power they're going to put up so that eventually you can get a Pepsi sponsorship and make all your money selling perfume. Mm. Because you're going to give them the record in exchange for them spending a lot of money. And that's, that's maybe an okay trade. Mm. If you think that you're going to sell arenas, but if you think you're anything else, and most people are anything else, mm. then like any business, keep your overhead low, but but you've got to spend marketing money to let people know that it exists. So I, I, to just to distill it down, I'd say try to write the best songs possible. Mm. Um, 
try to perform them with some spontaneity and some guts. But, but if you got to err on one side or the other, err on the side of a stripped down guitar bass drums recording mm-hmm. that's quite simple, but that puts the energy across, make that as cheaply as possible, and then spend your money promoting it. Oh, and, and hire somebody who knows what they're doing to take the pictures. <laughs> Nothing will make you look, you know, unprofessional like shit promo pictures. You, you speak from experience in that yes. regard. <laughs> hire, hire somebody who knows what they're doing with lighting. If you don't have somebody in your unit that does, to take proper good photos of you. Fair enough. And then all, I would also say, when you write your bio, you write your press release for your record, one page, you know, two three paragraphs. When you write that, you were writing ninety percent of your record reviews. Most of the people that, that, that in say, any of the magazines or the websites or whatever, they will quote your press release damn near word for word and then chuck their name down at the end. I've watched it happen. Mm. I mean, you know, so you're writing your own reviews. Yeah. And nobody cares about your deep poetic soul. Nobody wants to know if he grew up in a small village outside of Peterborough. He spent many hours working in the fields and also practicing his car. Nobody gives a crap. Man, <laughs> make it, you're doing a show. Make it entertaining. Mm. So, you know, after he created the internet, he then decided to go out and he discovered he was working on, you know, cold fusion in Denmark when he met this girl. And, you know, you know make up yeah. a story, man. Yeah. Make it fun. Mm. This is the entertainment business. Entertain mm. people. They got lots of stuff they could spend their money on a given day. You know, some guy mm. lays brick all day long. He's got his own problem. Problems. He goes mm. home to some spouse he doesn't love anymore, and he, you know what I mean. He's doing a job that sucks, and so he comes out to your show, or he sees your your bio come across his feed in some record of you. He wants to say to himself, "I want to drink with that guy." <laughs> he doesn't want to say, "Oh, maybe he's going to tell me about the meaning of life." No, man. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, making mistakes is super important, but some mistakes can set you back quite a lot. Is there anything you particularly regret or anything you always sort of see fellow musicians do that they really shouldn't? Well, in a, okay, in a live scenario, I think the worst thing that you can ever do is, number one, apologize for making a mistake because chances are people in the audience won't even know that you did. Mm. You know, if, you, if you're playing something and you screw up, you go, oh, whoops, sorry. No, don't do that. Mm. Play it again. Do it three times in a row and act like you meant to do it. Because mm-hmm. most people are not even going to know the difference, mm. you know, unless they're like, some guys in Dusseldorf who've got your album and study every note and come back to the show and say, you played the guitar solo slightly different in the third measure. You'll get a couple of those yeah. guys. <laughs> Maybe you humor those guys, but the rest of the people, yeah, don't ever, don't ever get up on the stage and apologize for when something goes wrong. You know, if, if one of your monitor wedges cuts off, don't start yelling at the sound guy through the microphone in front of the audience. Mm. Just deal with it. When you get an opportunity, lean over to the monitor guy and say, dude, I got a problem, but try to never involve the audience in technical problems mm. unless it's just extreme. In which case, Make a joke out of it. Don't ever, ever act like you're being flustered or thrown out of your game when you're on the stage. Mm. I mean, we, we played the Sonosphere Festival a few years ago, and we were the sort of after party. It was when they had Metallica and Slayer, and, and they, they'd all played the main stage, and we were like the the only thing going on the festival site at midnight, which was from 11 maybe. It was when Metallica stopped, and we kicked up for an hour in the kind of big after marquee. It was a big marquee, how like they had 10,000 people. It was gigantic. Mm. Um, and we walk out on stage and we play the first two or three songs. The stage, the, the whole tent's packed. Everybody's just come off the Metallica experience. The place is rocking. And then right in the middle of the third song, the bass stops working. Some kind of short, you know. Oh, man. And, um, okay. So I start playing Skinny When I Met Her and Pooping the Jar. And I get through two or three of the singer-songwriter comedy songs, you know, just mm-hmm. trying to hold the crowd while Jake, our bass player, is over there with a soldering iron. The sound man's up there dicking around with this and that. <laughs> they still ain't got it. We went 20 minutes with no bass, and I just had to play them acoustic guitar comedy songs, 
I have an abduction probe. And then I'm thinking, dude, just go borrow somebody's bait. Do something. Mm. And I'm thinking okay. to myself, you know, okay, I can, I, can, I, can, I can have the interlude in the middle of the set here for a little while, but people are starting to get restless. They're starting to go give us some rock. And I'm thinking, shysa. Mm. But finally, yeah, he just borrowed somebody else's electric bass because he usually plays this acoustic guitar bass. Oh, yeah. you know, he borrowed somebody else's, and we got through the rest of the set. But yeah, that that was a that was a moment because I really wanted to go out and rock hard at mm. that one, you know. And so yeah, for a, a third of the set, I'm reduced to being a singer songwriter. You know, that was mm. kind of weird, especially in that context, you know. Mm. But again, I never I never said anything about it. I never said to the audience, "Oh, our bass guitar stopped working, so I'm stuck doing this," because I thought, well. What, what's the upside? If I tell them something went wrong, what, they're going to sympathize with me? They're going to give me a hug? That's not what they're there for. So just do it like it's part of the show. And to that same subject, I've always thought it was really dumb if you play a show and there's very few people in the audience and people start going on the stage, where is everybody? Well, why are you asking the people who are there that? They turned up. Mm. The people that you want to yell at aren't there. Mm. So don't go on the stage and start bitching about the fact that almost nobody's in the crowd. I don't care if it's two people or 2,000. Play the same show. Because whoever turned up and paid deserves a good show. Mm. And it's it's hard to do it. That's one of the hardest things is going out and playing to a damn near empty room. That's mm. very difficult. But that's what separates professionals from amateurs, in my view, is can you go out and play the same show no matter how many people are there? Mm-hmm. Or just pick the three or four people who are into it. You know, mm-hmm. That's the other hard thing. When you've got an audience and nine-tenths of the, if you're a support band, say, and nine-tenths of the crowd don't mm-hmm. really, they didn't come to see you, they don't care nothing about you, they're just talking. Well, if they're talking, don't start yelling at them and say, shut up, I'm talking here. Do something interesting enough to make them stop. Mm-hmm. If you can't make them stop talking, then maybe you need to get your game up. Mm. What's the worst thing that's ever happened to you on stage? The hell, I'll be honest. Uh, what the Italians call a dressed fart. Oh. When you think oh. it's going to be gas, but it ain't. Oh. <laughs> oh, John. Oh. That happened oh. to me once on stage in Lexington, Kentucky, an event you called the dame. I walked up on the stage, and I was just about ready to count off the first song, and I thought I was going to do a cheeky little one-cheek sneak, and I went, oh, no. <laughs> And the house music's coming down, the lights are coming up, and I'm like, I'll be right back. And it was one of those venues where there wasn't even a backstage toilet. You had to walk down through the crowd into the public toilet. I walk into there, I just pushed somebody out of the way, walked into the the, the toilet stall, you know, mm. where they had the commode, not the urinal place. And there's no damn loo roll. Oh. So I'm oh. like, well, goodbye socks. <laughs> you know? <laughs> And just threw everything in the corner, wadded up, walked back on stage freeballing, you know, and just thought, mm. well, got to get through the set. Mm. At what point does the sort of cohesion of the band become more important than, like, sparing somebody's feelings? Like, if you have to say, look, man, it's not working out. Like, how, how do you sort of end up making that decision? Well, you, yeah, you got to try to put yourself... Uh, your personality out, out of it and think about what is or is not serving the show. Mm. Um, so if you got somebody who's drinking too much and turning up drunk for the gigs, they're not respecting the show. Mm. And so they're taken away from it, no matter how good of a player they are when they're sober, for just for example. Mm. Or if you got somebody whose attitude is just unbalanced and everybody else in the group so much that everybody's assed up on stage the whole time they're trying to play, you have to take a, a, a sort of a, yeah, a, from a third-party perspective approach to it and be, be an efficiency expert once in a while and just say, you know, it's not personal. Everybody's there to create and deliver the show. Mm. And so whatever is detracting from delivering the show, if it can't be fixed, if you have a discussion about it and you can't fix it, 
you got to move on down the road because the show has to win at the end of the day, not any individual person's vision or any individual person's ego or whatnot. But at the end of the day, the product coming off the stage has to be the best it can be. So, yeah, if you got somebody who's consistently detracting from that, that's the way I would tell them is, look, you're not delivering the show properly, you know, or whatever it is that's going on is, is, is detracting from from what we're trying to deliver, you know, the product here. So, yeah, that that's the way I would view it. Not you're an asshole or, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's no point in being personal about it. You, mm-hmm. but that's you know, what you don't want to do. You want to try to separate being personal, mm-hmm. which is, yeah, yeah, a difficult thing to do. And the more people you have involved, the more difficult it becomes. Mm-hmm. You know, six-piece bands are a lot harder to run than four-piece bands. Usually there's one or two dudes in a group, usually two, Mm. that kind of do all the heavy lifting and everybody else just kind of turns up and plays. So, yeah, I mean, there's an awful lot of bands out there that are marketed as bands that are not actually bands as far as their internal structure. Mm. There's usually one or two guys that kind of own it and run it and then everybody else kind of turns up. People love the idea that we're all a merry band of brothers going down the road, but that's not in reality how it usually works out. Yeah, There's it's usually like a, one or two people who kind of shoulder yeah. most of the burden. Just like when I was talking about it being preferable not to roll down the road in the bus and have to make a group consensus decision about every little thing. Mm-hmm. If you've got to get group consensus decision about everything to do with delivering a show, it's going to be very difficult. Mm-hmm. There always have to be chiefs and Indians. If you got all chiefs and no Indians, you can't get anything done, mm-hmm. you know, because you're just going to spend the whole time deliberating over what should we do. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, deliberation's got its purpose, but at the end of the day, you got to take action, you know? Mm-hmm. And that is easier to do if you sort of have a chain of command. Mm. And everybody's comfortable with that. And somebody who's a good leader knows how to delegate responsibility and how to, you know, incorporate people's good ideas and not try to do it all themselves. Mm. That's just in any business, whether you're trying to run a coffee shop or whatever you're doing, you know, just because you're the guy who owns the business doesn't mean that you're in there you know, telling everybody how it's going to be dictator style because you won't keep good people if you do that. You know, my people respond to incentives, but I just mean as far as how you're structured in business, it's probably better to not structure it as a five way partnership just because it's probably not going to actually pan out like that. Mm. It's probably better for the people who sort of have the vision to, to set it up and then kind of hire people to do the stuff they can't do, you know, mm. like play baseball or playing guitar or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Is there anything that you would, if you, if you could, would you tell your younger self that you wish somebody had told you? Not every girl that you have sex with is going to fall in love with you. It's very important <laughs> to figure that out early. Yeah. Fair uh, enough. <laughs> and life is too short to drink bad booze. If somebody hands you a beer you don't like, just set it down in the corner. And when they bring all the shot trays up to the stage, just set them in front of the monitor wedge and kick them over. Mm. If you start drinking shots on stage, man, five different kinds of liquor, you won't get through the show. Mm. Now, or, or you won't be able to sing the next day. Be very horizontal very quickly. Yeah, well, you got to be thinking about when you're on tour or two, pacing yourself. Don't make the late surge early. That's what mm. I would say. <laughs> well, thanks for coming, John. It's hey, been man, very, very I fucking informative. Some of what I've said is useful to somebody who's out there. And I feel like I've learned something, so, well, you know. <laughs> it's all stuff I had to kind of figure out by following my nose. Mm. So, awesome. You know. Thank you, man. I hope some of that's useful. So that was John Wheeler. What a cool relaxed helpful just pleasant and very talented dude he is if he happens to be listening john you're the man thanks for hanging out and answering size questions and now the slightly awkward bit of podcasts where we try to get money out of you um yeah straight up we want money (laughs) 
<laughs> like we love doing interviews with bands we love generating content for podcasts and youtube and all of that but actually it does take time and we could do more and we could do more at a higher quality if you guys want to help us out over patreon uh i think just think about it in terms of if you've taken any piece of advice from us over the years and it's helped you in some way what is that worth to you maybe it's a dollar maybe it's five dollars maybe it's literally a thousand dollars that would be nice or maybe you've just been entertained by this podcast because you like john wheelie you like hasty dixie and he's a funny dude which he is so if you've just enjoyed it on an entertainment basis well i don't know just think about the money you spend on amazon prime netflix whatever is this worth a dollar for the length of the episode compared to whatever you pay for netflix or anything else maybe it is maybe it isn't i'm going to leave that up to your discretion if you want to find stab panda on youtube we have a whole crap load of content up there several years worth of stuff some of it is going to be turned into podcasts but definitely not all of it definitely a lot of it is uh quite comfortable in a visual medium and i wouldn't want to change that you can come find us also on instagram and twitter we are stab panda and you can read a whole bunch of interviews with bands a whole bunch of reviews of underground and unsigned bands on stabpanda.com and if you want to get in touch because you want to be featured that's an option go to stabpanda.com find the contact section and please for the love of all that is holy actually read the damn thing before you send us an email okay quite important anyway one last thing you can do is give us a rating on whatever podcast app you're listening to give us ideally a good rating maybe write something leave a comment share this with people just make some noise on our behalf that would be nice or at the very least hit the follow button or the subscribe button or whatever it is on whatever app you're listening to i should really research this a little bit more anyway bye